Okay, so here we are now with another conversation, another day, another bunch of things to talk about. Today I'd like to talk about the dance of anger, which is a best-selling book by Harriet Lerner. And this book is written for women, and it's about breaking the cycles of certain relationship patterns. So it's very much a therapeutic spin on relationships. And there's a lot to this. This is a very important thing to understand. I can't really see any way around not understanding it. There's no there's no real opening of substance without addressing these things. So they are critical to understand. And I hope that will be apparent as we go on. Here's the thing. Family is a cursed treasure. Except in reverse. Now with cursed treasure, normally you get the gold and it's good. And then later on, the curse takes effect and it turns out to be bad. Family is just like this, except in reverse. Which is that when you go into your family, when you really look at your family, when you first get your family, it turns out to be something quite horrible, quite negative, quite bad in many ways, in many times the worst ways. And yet, if you do that, if you willingly take that on and you do the work, a treasure comes, a resolve comes. And that is the true opening, that is the true realization that all of therapy is trying to bring you to. And there's no way around it because we all have a family structure that we're brought up in, and we all have relationships that we live with, that we have. This is the life that we're in. And you could say, well, I just don't talk to my family. I don't have anything to do with them. I don't, I don't relate to them at all. I don't really have much at all in any way to do with them. But you can't escape so quickly because actually what Lerner says in this book and what happens to be the case, I believe, is that you are bringing to your other relationships all the things that are unresolved from your family upbringing and from your conditioning. Here's sort of the general picture that I get from this book, The Dance of Anger. We all have 
certain complexes within us. Many of them are common to all humans, all people. And we own or we accept and deny certain complexes or certain values or certain things within us. And we do this because we have needs and we have a way that we've worked out how to navigate our environment as we've grown up. So we've been conditioned with our behavior to get our needs met depending on the circumstances by which we were raised. Now we get to a certain point where we can look at this and we can start to unwire it and we can work with it and we can learn how to undo the conditioning and to balance the complexes within us. We can learn to own all of the different complexes within us. Or we can just keep on living how we are. We can keep on having certain cycles. We can have certain patterns of relationships. We can have the same relationship over and over again, even when it's with a different person, different people. So let's look at some of the more finer details now that Harriet Lerner has spoken about in her book. And it is written for women, this book specifically, but, you know, I read it anyway, me being sort of trying to be open-minded, like what, what, do, what do women say to women about women? How do we understand that? And I found that it applies to basically anyone anyway. Like you can read it as a man and it still applies. Basically all of the things that she says. Because she looks at, she looks at it from a, a broader picture. She understands all of the different sides of it. So essentially what she says is that Anger is a signal that we are being hurt. Under anger is hurt. And under hurt is a need that hasn't been met. It's something that's gone wrong. Something that hasn't been fulfilled by someone that you thought they would fulfill. And if this happens, if you're an angry person or you have anger coming up, then there's something you need to learn. There's something you need to address which isn't apparent. It isn't obvious, especially in the moment that you are angry. So it does take a bit of self-reflection. It takes a bit of actually consciously seeing for yourself when you are angry. Now, if you can do it in real time, well, that's an amazing skill. That's almost a kind of superhero power. And there are techniques for that, which we've discussed before. But the first step, at least, is to recognize at a different time when you are angry. Now, there are differences between men and women culturally because of the way that our society has evolved because of the way that it's unfurled as it has, there are cultural differences between men and women. So 
that's largely what this book looks at. That's the difference. That's the that's the sort of take on why men and women are different. And that being said, you could say, well, it it shouldn't be that way. In an ideal society, it shouldn't be that way. In a utopian society, it wouldn't have to be that way. And yet, we're working with what we've got. And we can also look at the reasons why. And we can look at feminism and see, well, where have things been unbalanced for women through the centuries? And we can say, well, what have we done to fix that? What can we do more to fix that? We can understand it more. We can empathize. But generally, what we're talking about in this book or what Lerner is talking about is, well, this is what we've got and here's how we make a few steps towards it. So if she doesn't get bogged down into the why things are the way they are culturally too much without really getting off onto the practical side of, well, what can we do about it and what is it that we do? So generally speaking... Men are considered to be heroes for fighting for what they believe, and women are condemned. So when a man stands up and he's got a, a kind of staunch, strong insistence like, oh, this is what I want, this is what I believe, or this is how things should be, then he's, he's basically like, yes, very good, well done, ha ha, yes, all power to you. And yet when a woman does the same thing, she's condemned, she's put down. When a woman insists, when she's hard, she's seen as oh, overly emotional or too, too strong, she should soften up or, you know, she's too much out of control, she's not grounded enough, these sorts of things. So in that, there's this thing of venting. And this is where the anger comes into it, because a woman, generally speaking, has two ways of dealing with her anger or the injustice or her needs not being met, which is, one, to be a bitch, and two, to be the nice, the nice girl, the nice lady. So, so the bitch is the one that, that vents. The bitch is the one that, that, that is really overt with, with like, Ur, I want what I want and you are wrong and this is terrible and they, they throw a tantrum. Now, the other side of it is the opposite, which is to completely go quiet, to not stand up for yourself, to agree and appease with everything. And yet... Lerner, in this book, says that there's not much difference between these two. There's not much difference at all. Because in both of these types of women, nothing changes. They don't get what they want. The bitch just gets written off as, whoa, you're out of control. Whoa, you've got anger issues. Whoa, what's your problem? I can't deal with this. And the nice lady, well, she gets forgotten about altogether. And in both those situations, well, where's the progress? Where is the opening? Where is the actual steps that are being put in place towards 
rectifying the underlying problem. And you can say, well, sometimes it's good for the nice lady to vent herself. Like, why can't the, the, the nice lady ha- have a moment to just get angry and really express herself? And there is something in that. There is something to opening to expression. But it's only the beginning. It's only the start. We're, we're still only working with the surface layers when we're doing that. So both the bitch and the nice lady need to really look at what they're doing and step into the underlying problems. Now, there's this funny thing with complexes in relationships, particularly intimate relationships, which is that when you have a complex which you deny, the partner will do things to draw that back to your attention. It's a kind of compensating for it. They will balance it by going in the other direction. So Lerner in her book identifies one of these as the underfunctioning, overfunctioning relationship. So this is where you have one partner that is overfunctioning. They're highly functioning. They're they're organized. They're efficient. They're getting things done. They're doing the jobs. In all the different ways over-functioning can manifest itself, that partner is doing all of them. Now, to balance it, the other partner becomes under-functioning. They're useless. They're lazy. They don't do anything. They're They're incompetent. They achieve nothing. They're just... Good for nothing, really, in all the ways. And this is a funny sort of balancing because in both of us, we have, both in us, in us, sorry, how do I say this? Both the complexes are in us. We have both the complexes. We have both functioning and under-functioning within us. We have competence and incompetence. We have skill, we have a strength, and we have a vulnerability. We have things that we can't do. So when a man has a part of him which he can't do on his own, he can't live with on his own, or there's something he can't do on his own, he'll compensate by over-functioning because he's denying that. He'll never ask for help and he'll work more and more and more to to just suppress the parts of him that show any sort of weakness or any sort of vulnerability. And yet the feminine, traditionally, the woman, picks up on this. Now, of course, it can be the other way around, but mostly because of our culture, it goes that the woman picks up on this and then they start compensating. And how they compensate is by being weak and allowing the man to take care of him, take care of her. And this is, what does that achieve? That achieves to show how strong he is. It achieves to show 
how competent he is, how able he is. So the woman has been sucked into this suppression. They've been sucked into sort of trying to balance this out. It's almost, it's almost like there's a certain amount of vulnerability that has to be there. And if it's not there in the man, then the woman's going to pick it up. So how would you balance that? How would you fix that? Well, Lerner in this book says that you reverse the roles. You can easily, once you've identified this, reverse it. Which means that the woman should start to be competent. She should start to be more dominant. If she's the weaker one, she's the incompetent one. She's the, uh, she's the under-functioning one. Then she should step into the role of the functioning one. And this, in a strange way, if done consciously, well, if it's done consciously, if you're working with these things consciously and you're actually going into it, then it's much better because you can see that the the man then has to say, well, okay, where are the where where are the things in my life where I need help and I can't do it alone? How do I make myself vulnerable to that? How do I become helpless to that? And this is a this is a complete reversal of of roles, like like. When this happens, if you actually try this, it's like this huge shock. Like, like imagine the man who has his whole life together and is really successful and knows how to do things really well. And then he turns around and says, hey, I need help with something. Hey, I can't do this without you. Hey, I really need you. These sorts of phrases. When he says that, well, he's switched roles and there's more of a balance. Things have gone out in the other direction. So balancing it is the key, but it doesn't really get as simple as that because Lerner goes on to explain that whenever you have a change in a pattern, there's a resistance. There's something that kicks in. There's a sort of doubling down. So it's not as simple as a man just going to his woman and saying, well, can you help me with this? Or can I make myself vulnerable? Or I can't do it, can't do it without you. It's not, as, it's not as simple as just saying the words or even having the, the good intentions, the noble intentions of doing it. There's actually a resistance because the patterns that we're in, we're comfortable with. They've got us this far, right? They've worked this far, so we don't want to change things around. And Lerner calls this the please change, change back mixed signals. So what's going to happen is you're going to have this acceptance at first of the change where it'll be like, great, wow, there's this new thing. It's really good. But then there will be this other message that comes and... It will be the change back message. It will be, how do we reverse back to the old way of things being? How do we get back into that old pattern? And this is this is the mixed messages. Like, like if you've ever had this thing of, 
oh, I don't understand this woman. She's giving me so many mixed messages. She she says one thing on one hand, and then she says the opposite on another day. And I just, I just can't figure it out. I can't figure out women. <laughs> well, that's exactly what's going on here. That's exactly what's happening. And there's a further theory to this. There's the the Bowen family systems theory, which is this three-step thing which Lerner does discuss in this book and in relation to the please change and change back mixed messages. And it goes something like this. So step one is you are wrong. There's something wrong with you. And then step two is Change back to how you were, and we will accept you. And step three is, if you don't change, there are going to be consequences. And ultimately, the consequence is exile. It's to be kicked out of the family, to be kicked out of the relationship. To be sent out of something, to be thrown out of whatever it is, whether it's a family or an institution or a social circle or a community, that is the ultimate punishment. To be segregated, to be severed. So, what does Lerner say about... Uh, what, what? How should we put it? It's, it's like you've got this double down, you've got this effect, and you know you have to go through with it, and you're really stuck in a hard place. Well, one thing she says is that it's hard to learn we have a right to our hearts and our heads, which is different to agreeing to reality. You've heard this in arguments before or in relationship discussions before, which is, well, What's the truth? What's the truth of the matter? How are things really? Sometimes it's, it seems like all arguments and all discussions are just about, well, what is truth? What is real? What's the best description or explanation for what's going on here? But really, on a deeper level, we just have to learn that our hearts and our heads are the way they are, irregardless of the reality. And it takes quite a lot to see that as a higher value, to actually hold the value of emotions and thoughts above a so-called reality. Another way she discusses or describes that you can get out of this sort of tangle of being sent mixed messages or stuck in a pattern is to turn things into I messages. So she gives the example of the mother who sees the child playing with the knife and the mother's scared and says, you're going to cut yourself with that or, you know, give, give me that knife, you might cut yourself. Now, this is, this is you, right? You are going to cut yourself. 
So to change that into an I message, she says, when I see you with the knife, I become nervous. So you are becomes I feel. You turn it back in on yourself. Now, stating yourself clearly doesn't necessarily mean... (coughs) Pardon me. Stating yourself clearly does not necessarily mean the truth will prevail. Learner correctly identifies that. And you do also have to watch out for tricky sort of deceptive I messages, which are really you messages. Like you can say, I feel that you are not clear within yourself. I feel you are not able to understand this situation. So that's that's sort of a, a backhanded I message. And you could say it's something that takes a bit of practice to really talk about yourself. It is something that takes quite a bit of maturity, like in in any situation to say how I feel, it takes quite a lot. Like there's something that it seems to be that there's some sort of force or something that makes it easier to blame others. It makes it easier to shift the problem onto someone else. The problem is them. The problem is what they have done. The problem is what they have said. The problem is with how they think about the world or how they think about the situation. And really, this is something that's so beautiful about like group therapy. And if you've ever done group therapy in the same way that Lerner is discussing in this book, The Dance of Anger, you'll understand that this is one of the fundamental techniques, which is where you you basically sit down in a circle and you talk about yourself. And and it's, it's astonishingly simple and also, in many ways, quite tricky. Like, you need a therapist there to run the show and really be careful and point things out. But when you look at it so simply that it's just, it's so easy. It's it's so, like it seems to be of no substance. And yet, as the conversation unfolds, something truly amazing happens. The connection that people have in those sharing circles are astonishing. And it's simply a matter of them sitting down and saying, well, I did this. This is how I felt about it. This is what I thought about it. This is who else was involved. This is how it affected my life. This is what I learnt from it. This was what was hard about it. And you're just talking about yourself. You're just saying what it is that's up to you. Now, when we come into close relationship with people, it's basically the polar opposite, right? Like 
like a, a therapy sharing circle is often with people who are anonymous. So you can you can find yourself in a therapy circle with a, with a bunch of people that you don't even know the names of. You've never met them in your life. And that's to a great advantage. That's one of the strengths of it. That's sort of like an easy way of doing it, of sort of easing yourself into these techniques. Because it's easy with a stranger. They've got no investment in you. They've got no reflection on you. They've got no projection. There's no tires. There are no there's there's, there's nothing. It's a clean slate. And yet with our personal relationships, it's the opposite because we have all these things invested in them. We have expectations, we have judgments, we have the identities that we've built up of them that we're trying to maintain and the identity of ourselves that we've tried to impart onto them that we're trying to maintain. And then there's the certain needs that they have and haven't met and there's resentments and there's all these ties and there's all these complexes. It really is, in so many ways, just a big mess. And in the case of family, it goes back for years. It goes back for your entire life. It began before you were even conscious of such things. Decades. Decades before you were conscious of such things. Before you could even talk. So with something so complex, with something so tricky, you need something simple. You need something easy. And that's the strength of the I messages. Talk about yourself. It's so simple. Try it next time you're angry. Another point that she says is that giving in to someone who stands strong can lead to resentment. So this thing of prevailing situation or prevailing truth is really just a prolonging of more problems in many cases. And that's why it's so important to say what's true to you, what's actually the heart of the issue. So, another thing that she talks about, learner in this book, is triangles. So, when we have two people, we've sort of got a back and forth and there's sort of strings between them. But there's another dynamic which is with three people. So, you can have an unbalanced complex between two people or you can bring in a third to balance it. So this would be like, say, say there's someone who isn't going along with my identity or what I'm projecting onto them or how I want them to perceive me or they're not meeting any sort of need or there's, there's something, whatever it is. Someone who has a difference between me and them that I don't like. I can then go to a third person and talk about how bad that is. And I can have a bitch about them. So this is gossip, right? This is like having a bitch about someone. And if someone listens and they agrees, they're then going to reassert 
that I am right. They're going to feed me something that I need that I didn't get from them. And it can, in so many ways, be a, a kind of closening thing, like the, the rejection of that person that comes through the judgments that I put on them is offset with the closeness that I get from the third person that I bitch to. And I imagine, I mean, I don't, I don't make a habit of bitching. I've sort of, like, I've never really had this problem. Like, I've, I've been very good with, if you've got a problem with that person, you go to them. Don't tell me about it. But I can imagine with certain women, women in particular, I think women are more prone to gossiping than men. But I can imagine there would be great friendships very close friendships that are founded on the judgment of a third person like if you really if you really confide in someone how much you hate someone you can feel really close to them now of course that's a pseudo closeness that's a that's a closeness that's bound to pop sooner or later because the problem is always that if you bitch to someone about someone, they're always going to be thinking like they could turn around and say the same to me later on. And that's why it's unsustainable for many other reasons, I'm sure, as well. So the trick with triangles, and I mean, she gives another, she, she gives another example or a number of examples, but the other example is the mother and the son. So the mother can turn her son into her prince by projecting the things, the values or the qualities that her partner didn't provide for her onto her son. And and this is this is similar to the the bitching thing, right? Like the the mother will be saying, oh, your father's such a terrible thing. She'll demonize the father and praise the son. You're so wonderful. You're so incredible. That's a, that's a pretty classical kind of dynamic there. And that's just another example that she talks about in this book. And of course, the answer is, of course, just in the case of all the other triangles, the case is, well, what is it one-on-one? What is you to me? What is our relationship? What is it that we are working on? What is it that we are doing? If you have a problem with that person, you should go to them. In so many ways, you're only, you only ever have one relationship at a time. You only relate to one person, one-on-one. From where we sit now in this conversation, there's no such thing as a collective. Every relationship is one-on-one. And of course, that becomes very tricky when you're talking about a mother and a son, because the son hasn't fully developed he might be quite young, 
and he's brought up into it. So very, very deep things can happen there. Very tricky things can happen. I mean, if you're listening to this, then, well, this is your chance to get out of it, right? This is like to, to, to be brought to these conversations is really quite astonishing. I mean, to think what we've come through, to be able to have this discussion at all is quite astonishing. So she goes on to discuss further things, Lerner, in this book. And one of the key things is, what are the unresolved issues from previous generations? So this is what the younger carries on through the generations. And this comes back to what I was saying at the start, which is that family is a cursed treasure. And if you go into it, you see how much unresolved issues there are. It goes back generations, generations and generations. People carry anger with them for their whole lives. Would you say your grandfather had any anger in him? Or was he a joyous person that only gave you roses and smiles and laughs? Now, if you go back far enough, in any family, you find that Family is broken. You find that it's hurt. It's full of pain. It's full of suffering. And if it's not personal issues, it's not personal relationships that have gone wrong, then it's war. It's war that has done it. Because don't forget, don't forget Really, you cannot forget this, that in 1939, there was a world war that affected just about everyone. And it particularly affected the men. The men saw and did horrific things, and they brought home traumas that they were terrified to pass on to anyone else. And not long before that, well, there was the First World War. And if, and if you don't have grandparents or older generations in the World Wars, well, then there's colonization. There's colonial, colonialism. And if not that, well, then there's slavery. There's racism. There's alcoholism. There's poverty. There's starvation and famine. And you don't have to go back many generations to find all of those things. And that's the case the whole world over. We all come from a broken humanity. We're clawing our... Like, can you get a sense of us clawing our way out of these conditions? 
Like this is, this is the world we've been living in for the last few hundred years. We've literally been scratching our way forward. And the people who lived in those times, our ancestors, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, were terrified to give that as an inheritance. They wanted nothing more than a better life for their descendants. And this is a bit of a tangent. This is a bit of a bigger picture sort of take on it. Lerner doesn't really quite go that far. She doesn't go into war or ancestry too much. But she gets us on the way. She points us in the right direction, which is that you, you can do this by just, first of all, mapping out a family tree. Have you ever done your family tree? It's quite easy. doesn't take much. And you don't have to make it complete doesn't have to go very far. You can just sit down with your mum or your dad or your brother or your sister or anyone you know who's preferably someone, the generation, one, pardon me, one generation older than you. So a mum or a dad or an uncle is a good person to do it with. And you say, well, okay, let's map this out. So there's me and my brothers and sisters in my generation. And then there's my parents And then there's my grandparents. And of course, you've got your aunties and uncles on both sides of your parents' line. And then you've got your grandparents, so you've got four grandparents. And you can put it on a piece of paper and do it in lines so you can see the generations easily. And you write their names. And you can go back an extra generation. I mean, usually it's not too hard to know who your great-grandparents were. But beyond that, it's a bit of a stretch. You might have to dig up some records. But you just write the name and then you say, well, what's a little fact about them? What did they do? Uh, He was a shoemaker or she was in sales. And little facts will come through. They might say, well, was there any problem with alcohol? Was there any problem with money? Was there a divorce? Was there a death? You just write one little fact, something, between each of the names, and then you start to get a picture. You start to see what's going on, and it's astonishing how many patterns there are. You'll be surprised at how many times things repeat. And it is hurtful to do this. It is hurtful to realize these things. But if you look at it clearly, and you really open yourself in a compassionate way to the hurt of the generations, then you can really start to feel a sense of peace, a sense of calm, a deeper sense of understanding one another. You start to see how important it is to relate nicely to one another. So what are the unresolved issues from previous generations? Because that's what we carry with us.
And another little thing that Lerner prescribes or says is good to use for anger is this three-step process, which is to stay calm, stay out, and stay one-to-one. And here is where we divulge into meditative techniques, because staying calm or regulating the breath or being aware or witnessing yourself is something that meditative practices deal with. And she doesn't go that far. She doesn't talk about meditation. But she at least outlines that that's the next step. That's the first step. It's really, I mean, I mean, all of these sort of self-help books are poised at the people who are first getting into these things. It's designed to bring you to the primary realization, which is that you have to do a certain work. You have to do a certain thing on yourself thing for yourself. It's like you have to do a certain practice on yourself. So those are a few things that I got from this book, The Dance of Anger by Harriet Lerner. And probably one of the most important things to understand from all of this is that Family work doesn't end. Don't think of it like I've got issues with my family and I need to do a bunch of things like therapy or techniques or whatever and then they'll be resolved and then we'll be good. That's too simplistic. That's not how it works. Family work never ends just like meditation never ends. Just like writing in your journal never ends. Just like working out at the gym never ends. Just like eating healthy never ends. Now, that being said, there are milestones that you can reach. There are certain things that you can lay to rest. There are certain points There are certain plateaus of goodness that you can reach with your family and with your relationships. You can, indeed, lay issues to rest. You can say, well, we're good. I'm okay with you. And a good way to gauge where you're at is to go to your family member and you say, Have you got any beef with me? And you can ask that in a number of different ways. And make sure you ask it sincerely. You might need to explain what you mean a little bit. But just be open. And you can say, well, I'm I'm trying to open to my issues. You know, making making yourself from... that's That's like the risk, right? That's like the daredevil... Like, that's that's what we call, like, daredevil interpersonal relations. Like really going out on a vulnerability. Take something. And you never know how it's going to be taken. And in some cases, 
people aren't willing to cooperate. They aren't willing to work with you in such a pleasant way. You do have to take that into account. Like just because you're open to these sorts of methods doesn't mean that your family is going to go along with it. But if that's the case, I mean, if that's where you're at, that's still that's still going to bring you to a peace by doing that, by realizing that, by working with that. What Whatever you do in your family work is going to work for you. It's personal work. It's a bit deceptive that it's called family work or family therapy. It's really, it's really personal therapy. Because you only ever do therapy on one person. It's only ever one person that becomes more aware individually. And of course, it can also get to the point where things are amazing. It can get to the point where family is a beautiful thing. Less often, I must say. It's very rare that that's the case. But of course, we have, I mean, I mean, this is the tragedy, right? I mean, we have this knowledge. It's, it's written in. This knowledge is written in a book, which is a bestseller. Like it's sold three million copies. It's not like it's, it's not like it's a secret book. It's not like these are secret techniques. They're out there in mainstream popular psychology. This is this is this is like ABC psychology. This is ABC methods of therapy. Like we're not. We're not talking about some extravagant, esoteric, existential, sort of like mystical, spiritual, like there's none of that. This is all really simple stuff in so many ways. And yet we're not there. We're still angry at each other. We're still resentful and we don't even know it. We don't even know how to begin addressing that. You would think that we would learn. You would think that more families would be happy. And I mean, there are happy people. There are people that realize these things and wake up to the joy of life. There are people that do the work quite seriously and quite deeply. I've known people who have done so much family work, it's quite ridiculous. <laughs> and that doesn't necessarily mean they have a happy family. But it does necessarily mean that they are happy, that they live with joy. They live in peace with how things are, with how things turned out. And maybe there will, will always be a longing for a better time, a better way for us to relate to each other, a better understanding between each other. 
And maybe, I don't know, maybe the singularity will come come along and we'll be able to download all human knowledge into our brains and then everything will be fine. But I don't know. I don't know the future. So those are a few thoughts, a few impressions on the book The Dance of Anger by Harriet Lerner. I don't know what year it came out. I suspect it's quite an old book because I found it on a dusty bookshelf hidden in the corner. But it seemed to be popular enough and I it was it was written in the in the language of popular psychology. So I assume it's quite well known. Thanks very much for tuning in. My name is Dosta. And I hope you have a beautiful day. I hope you're staying healthy, staying fit. I've already done my workout for today. I'm doing low reps. Sorry, high reps. Low weight at the moment. So trying to get those push-ups into the higher digits. And we'll be back very soon with more. That's all I have to say for now.